Creative company is so delicious, and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. What a pleasure to get to talk to Bruce Monroe. He's got a project studio in the Catskills, and he started out like me, writing songs, playing and performing. He did live sound from the stage, like so many of my bands did. But then he started doing live sound for B.B. King and Ray Charles and Arlo Guthrie and Roy Orbison, Leslie West and John Prine. We started talking on Facebook and Instagram, went to email, and I invited him on to have a chat. And what great tips he gives us today about recording. What a master. Beetle Bruce, hello. Hello, how are you? Pretty excellent. How are you? Thanks for jumping on here. You're welcome. It's cool to meet you. Yeah, well, you too. To at least be talking in real time. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. No more texting or emails or whatever. I can't even remember how we contacted each other. Maybe it was text. I don't know. Might yeah, have been email. Maybe because of Facebook or something, you maybe had some cool pictures of well, yourself. Well, yeah, there was a time when, you know, I had no idea I'd never met you. And then all of a sudden you were like all over my Facebook and Instagram, you know, you made a, <laughs> and it was suddenly it was like, wait a minute, who's this person? <laughs> Why <laughs> is the question? <laughs> well, you did a good job of self-promotion. That's for sure. What was I promoting? <laughs> just, you know, your overall studio recording and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was just cool to watch. Mm. Cool. Well, you've got a cool setup there. Tell me about it. What's going on back there? Well, this is something that I've had going on since 1981. I actually used to have a, a proper studio space, you know, commercial and all that. And uh, as time's gone on, you know, I, I basically just moved everything into my house because I'm, you know, kind of semi-retired. I don't work full time anymore and such. Lucky you. But the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the challenge that I took on was, you know, how do I create a working studio, um, you know, in a space that's not designed for a studio? Which and, is uh, life, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot like you, I think your your room is a lot more expansive and bigger than than my mix room. But I've also got a drum room and I've also got a uh, a regular, you know, recording space that I've created. And uh, nearby on the same floor. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's out there, you know. Yeah. And uh, I don't even really need to use a talkback mic. I could just, you know, hey, go ahead. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's that close. My drums are over there, too. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Mostly what I do now is mix because everybody's got a laptop and Logic or Pro Tools or whatever it is they're using. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll just send me tracks because when they finish their project, they realize that they really can't figure out how to make it sound good. <laughs> Even though the individual tracks might sound pretty good, they do, don't have the skill to blend it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's what I do. Blending's always been one of my favorite things, you know, like finding the way they enhance each other or the different tracks sit together. But I have been told sometimes, hey, you know, 
your stuff doesn't sound like a record. It sounds like a demo because the instruments are so pure. And production has gotten to a place where it's like the producer or the mix engineer imparts such a sound that if it isn't full of tons of parallel compression and all kinds of uh, studio wizardry, they're thinking it's not a today sound. And I don't think I have any interest in chasing too many of today's sounds unless something I think really fits one of my songs. I've been known to, you know, try all kinds of techniques and then go, what did I just do? It's like I blew the song up and it's not the song anymore, but I got the technique. Right. <laughs> I, I try to do whatever serves the song. Yeah. And, you know, like say for example, if, uh, you know, one of the few things that I do have that comes in and they actually record here, it's a, like a jazz trio mm. and they'll play everything live and nice. I'll basically run everything through the console. They monitor off the console. When we play back Pro Tools with all of the faders at zero, that's kind of the mix. And then there might be some minor tweaking after that, but you're talking about using very, very few plugins and such because you know, in many cases, I might have gone through compression on the way in because I have a bunch of outboard gear and stuff like that. That's very yeah. old school. Yeah. But that's where I started, you know, when I started recording um, back in, you know, the late 1970s, I, I actually, you know, created my studio in, in 81 was the first time when I called it squeezer recording. But prior to that, you know, I was still recording people, you know, on a four track. Yeah. And, uh, a real to real, you know, just because I was the only guy that had a four track and, a, you know, a few microphones. But, you know, my original recordings were, you know, one compressor. Uh, I had a spring reverb, you know, it was it was very, very archaic. Mm -hmm. And so you had to kind of pick and choose. All right. You know, what do we want to put the compressor on? Well, if you track, <laughs> you can put the compressor, you can use it on all the tracks. But if you're recording live, you know. Uh, and I never really used mix bus compression back in the old days and such. So, yeah, you know, now um, I try to still hit things on the way in and get, you know, a, a more finished sound when I record so that when you play it back, it actually sounds pretty good. It's not just, you know, a microphone plugged straight into an interface. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, pre-definition, you know, it's just the, the way that, that I learned and if you looked at my sessions, you'd say, gee, you know, there's there's not a lot of plugins on that, you know, maybe a little EQ, maybe a little bit of compression. You know, I mean, I've, I have been known to use parallel compression with drum kits and things like that. I mean, it just depends on what the song is. Sure. You know, most of the stuff that I do is younger performers, you know, that are, quote, indie Um I only record original music. You know, if people want to make like country demos so that they can go play in bars or whatever, you know, that's, I don't, I'm not interested in that. You know, I could do it if I just wanted to make money, but I'm really much more interested in, you know, working with somebody who's got something to offer that's, that's different. Nice. And, and new. a lot of the stuff that I do, I mean, it's really not commercial in the, in the, you know, the strict sense of, you know, pop commercial music. It's people that are out there trying to do their own thing. Yeah. And so when they send me tracks and such, you know, sometimes they have a lot of uh, plugins already on it or they already have their sounds. 
And mm. they're like, you know, that's kind of what I want. I just want you to make it a little better. And other times they'll just send me raw tracks and say, you know, can you turn this into a record? Have at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so. Uh, and how did you learn? I mean, was it just constantly working at it and doing it, reading magazines? And because there wasn't much resources back in the 70s. I was no. trying. <laughs> well, the all right. So the way that most people did it is that you learned by doing. Yeah. So. I was a performer first. I learned how to play the guitar a very young age. My, my dad was a very good guitar player. And so I started playing, you know, or at least picking the guitars up in the house at eight. Nice. And when I got to uh, like grammar school and high school, I started playing like folk masses and stuff like that. So at that point I had learned how to play three chords. And then uh, in college, I started going to, you know, open mics and such. And People started offering me, you know, jobs to play my acoustic guitar. I had the, you know, the Bob Dylan harmonica holder and I was ready to go. And I, I did that for a long time. I made a living doing that for a long time. Nice. You know, playing uh, two gigs a week, 50 bucks. Well, back then, you know, you could live on 100 bucks a week. Yep. Not well, but you could you could survive, you know. And um I would always mix myself from the stage. Well, then when I started playing in bands with, with people, you know, four-piece bands, simple, that type of thing, you know, we would mix from the stage because you didn't make enough money to hire a sound person. No. You know, and other bands would come and listen to us and they said, you guys sound really good. You know, <laughs> how are you making it sound like that? And so they eventually wanted to hire me to mix their band. So nice. I got into mixing live bands and clubs, nice. you know, nothing really elaborate, very, very simple, you know, rudimentary by today's standards, but that's what I was doing. And then a job opened up with a national sound company, national audio. Wow. And, um, initially I had like the C system, which was mono. It was small and I'd go around and I'd work with, you know, little club bands and things like that. People that wanted to hire a sound company. And then I graduated to the B system which was still mono, but now I was working with acts that were famous, mm. but they were on like the downside of their career. So um, I'd mix people like Ray Charles, B.B. King. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, legends, but, you know, Holy cow. they made their legend many, many years prior, you know, in the 1980s, they were still kind of, still performing and playing live, but record companies weren't making records with them so much anymore. Yeah. And there were a lot of bands like that. Um, you know, I mean, my, my resume just goes on and on. People almost probably think I made it up because it was like, well, how could you work with all these people? And it's like, well, you know, that's what it was. They were gigging. <laughs> right. They hired the sound company. So that's cool. the guys that I originally worked with, I already knew the rudimentaries of, you know, how to play some microphone, at least in a live sound setting. Yeah. And then I, I learned a lot of the different things about the processing, you know, uh, compression. And, you know, we use graphic EQs along with the EQ that was on the board and, you know, speaker protection and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it. And wow. eventually I worked my way up to the A system, which knew now we're in stereo. And, you know, 
the Allman Brothers, uh, Doobie Brothers, Huey Lewis wow. in the News. Yeah, I mean, you know, because they hire the sound company and you go out. Now, many times you're out there and you're yeah. what they call the babysitter. You're not actually mixing the band. You just get everything set up and you work with the sound man to make sure that they have everything that they want. But almost you know the gear and they don't know your gear. I'm sorry? Because they know the gear. Because you know the gear and they didn't know the gear. Yeah, they would just tell me I want this on this channel and I want this on, you know, and so you set it up for them. Yeah. Um, But that gives you the opportunity of watching a top-notch live mixer, somebody who mixes some of the best bands in the world. Hmm. You get to stand there next to them and see how they do things. And you, you can pick up, you know, even if you pick up one or two little things every gig, oh, definitely. it's an amazing amount of information. And most of the opening bands didn't have sound people. So I would always mix the opening band. Wow. You know, when you're always told you need to keep it at a certain volume, you can't be louder than the main band and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, I got to mix a lot of really good up and coming bands um, when I would mix the live band. Cool. So where the turning point was for me, uh, I was with another guy and we were doing Jay Leno. So, you know, one <laughs> microphone in his hand and one spare microphone just in case, you know, and so pretty easy gig. And we got a call backstage and they say, can you have your sound system down in Long Island tomorrow? Because, uh, you know, we need to provide a sound system for Motorhead. And so we drove all night. We got down the motorhead. And when I got down there, um, I was up on the stage setting up the monitors and such. And I asked one of the uh, managers or road managers, you know, where's your monitor, man? And, and he said, oh, you're it. So I had to mix the monitors for motorhead. And I mean, I'd never been around. I mean, they were so loud. I've never been near anything like that ever. I mean, it was just so incredibly loud on the stage. And, you know, <laughs> the first couple of minutes when they fired up at soundcheck, they're looking at me like, you know, we can't hear anything. <laughs> and I'm just like turning everything up and notching everything out and trying not to have the system just blow up and, and feedback. <laughs> and after about two minutes of terror, things kind of came in um, to where they should be. And so they didn't kill me. You know, I, I survived. <laughs> Did you have any um, help? <laughs> but well, and but after that, you know, I, they, the sound company got good reports, you know, about that show. So then they started having me working with all these metal bands. Oh, wow. You know, it's like, oh, he, he, can, he can get the system loud. Great. <laughs> and. That's when I decided that, you know, I'm going to go deaf. Yeah. This you know, is I got to get out of here. Yeah. So I started talking to different people and reaching out. And there was a guy named David Chase who had a small recording studio, you know, really good gear, automated board, the whole nine yards. And, you know, I just became like an apprentice. And that's how I learned. You know, I did all the things that you normally will do, you know, go out and get coffee, go, go buy a dinner, you know, that type of thing. But yeah. while that was all going on, you know, you learn the difference between, say, miking something up for a live setting is versus like miking it up for a recording. Mm. You know, what the different kinds of microphones. I mean, rarely would we ever use, say, like a ribbon mic or something like that. 
live. Yeah. It was all dynamic mics, mostly. Yeah. You know, we condensers for the overheads on the drums and things like that. But yeah. Um, so I, you know, I had a whole new learning that I went through. Um, and then the other big thing was learning how to deal with the clients when they came in mm. um, to make them at ease so that they would perform their best. Sure. Because there's always a certain amount of pressure. Recording is expensive. And so they come in thinking, okay, you know, I really need to knock this off as quickly as I can. And that's just a recipe for making mistakes. Yeah. You know, so having people come in and putting them at ease and, you know, having them feel like, you know, you know, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be great. It's going to sound great. And so I was off and running. I worked with David for a while and, and then I started my own thing. Wow. That's it. Super cool. Yeah. Long That's story. Really Sorry. Awesome. No, I love it. I love it. It's what everybody usually wants to know, you know, and, and everybody comes about it in a different way. I mean, for the longest time, I wanted to study with Phil Ramon. And then I even got his phone number from Elliot Shiner and uh, had called his office and stuff. And time went by. And then, unfortunately, he died. But uh, I was always buying all the recording magazines and all the you know, watching anything I could if there was a show about it or behind the scenes or some of the things, different specials people would have. But, you know, before YouTube, there was like very little out there. And then I think it was one day uh, just on Facebook seeing an ad for Pure Mix. And I just thought, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for my whole right, life right. is to be able to sit down with masters and see what they do and how they do it. And one of the first I watched was John Paterno with Robbie Robertson. And it just blew my mind. I'm like, this is what I've been looking for for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, there's so many great people that I like to listen to on YouTube. And I was uh, learning some things from Mix with the Masters for a while and, and some of those. But like you say, sometimes it gets into some music that you're it's so far away from the style I'm doing that it's. Like not helpful and I can't even endure the time to listen to those kinds of songs and loud crazy productions when i'm doing something so completely different here so uh now i sort of hunt and peck for these different things but i'm really grateful to youtube and all those things and so many generous people just in any subject in any field right you can learn anything yeah off the internet now it's 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 a blast <laughs> well i think my you know, you were a musician too, or still are actually. Um, the grounding that you get playing with different types of bands and things like that, that kind of set you up for being able to mix different types of music. Mm. And then when I was mixing live, you know, especially when you're with a professional sound company, you just do whatever kind of music, you know, is, is on the docket that night. So, sure. you know, it could be, uh, a folk festival or it can be jazz or it can be blues or you know whatever it might be and little by little you know uh, initially was that when i wasn't the primary mixer with the system i would just kind of learn you know yeah. uh from the people that were doing it all that you know uh set it up this way this is how you know it works how it sounds things like that and so when i went into recording about the only thing that I'd never really mixed was hip hop. Oh, wow. And I haven't really had a lot of people that have sought me out to mix hip hop. So I haven't really had a lot of opportunity. I did do a demo, one demo for a guy 
back in the early 2000s, you know, we used the drum machines and the whole nine yards and he was thrilled with it, but it never went anywhere. Hmm. Um, you know, but it's one of those things where I've never actually had a real authentic, like working hip hop group ever say, Hey, can you mix our music? Right. So, you know, that's something that's escaped me. And at this point in my life, it's probably pretty unlikely that anybody's going to reach out and and want to hire me, but, uh, you know, for something like that, but, mm. you know, I, I guess you can't do everything. Well, I think sometimes, uh, if an artist is listening to the samples you've got, if they think, wow, you've done some really great mixes here, you yeah. know, all kinds of genres with different sounds, it's very possible you could do that. There's nothing keeping you from it necessarily. It's just, uh, if they have the imagination to know that if someone is really good, they can really help you polish your, your mixes and, and, and get your music sounding professional. So I don't think that would stand in your way. Maybe they're just not in that area or, you know. Well, I mean, a region of the country, I mean, you know, in the, in the, the, the you know, the, the small mountains in the Catskills and there's not a tremendous amount of hip hop around here. You know, That's when you get over thinking. towards, say new paltz in that area it's yeah you know it's all about original music yeah um but you know it's not about original music that's hip-hop right you Tell know you got to get uh, south of poughkeepsie oh <laughs> yeah, heading towards new york city yeah yeah definitely <laughs> that makes sense Tell me about uh, some of the faders and stuff I see behind you. What are these pieces of gear? Well, this is a uh, Soundcraft console uh, from 1981. Um, it's made in England. Completely analog, obviously. It's a console that I've had since I got it pretty much new in 1981. I actually awesome. mixed BB King on this console. Wow. Yeah, so it, that's fun. But Soundcrafts back then were kind of regarded as a poor man's Neve. Yeah. And when you can't, when you can't afford a Neve console, this incarnation of boards, this is a 400. The 400 was at one point the most widely sold console in the world. Wow. Because you could use it. They had live configurations and they had recording configurations. This one's set up with an eight-track matrix, so it's designed to be used with an eight-track tape recorder, and that's, yeah, you know, I still have one back behind me over here. Um, and is and that what works really well with it is that the EQ on it is very quote British sounding. Yeah, and so uh, a lot of times, you know, I'll run through the console, you know, into Pro Tools, mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, use the EQ and, and the, uh, you know, the, the preamps that are in this console and you get a very vintage kind of a sound. Nice. Uh, on the other hand, if I want more modern sounds, I have an AEA preamp that I use for my ribbons. Oh, cool. Um, I have a blue preamp, which is pretty nice. That's got a tube in it. Um, nice. And that's, you know, it's a more simple preamp, but that works out pretty well. I have a warm preamp, which is uh, a copy of, you know, uh, a quote, American company, I, I, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that, uh, I can get a lot of different sounds 
Great. Uh, or a lot of different, you know, inputs going on in there. Sometimes I'll EQ on the way in. Sometimes I won't. You know, it just depends on, you know, what kind of sound I'm looking for. My main tool is the microphones. I have about 50 microphones mm-hmm. ranging from like super cheap all the way up to, you know, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a plethora of, you know, uh different types of mics i've got some ribbons tubes uh etc cetera, etc cetera. and awesome you know i just try to figure out all right you know at the recording stage what's going to sound good on this and if it doesn't sound good i change the mic or if the mic's sounding pretty good but not quite there i move the mic around until it sounds better that's great before i touch eq that's great and that's one of the things that i learned you know in, in the live sound days was move the mic around. Yeah. And it sounds like you were smart enough to know that you could still go through an analog console and then even into some interface as far back as even the 80s or 90s when things started getting into interfaces. I mean, I had a Studio Master Track Mix 32. And at the time, there was no way, unless you bought all these very, very expensive converters to go in and out. Yeah. I didn't realize with my interface that I could have just taken those outputs and put it through to get it to be digitized, but at least get some nice stuff on the way in through the analog board. Right, right. So I got rid of that and then I had missed it ever since. So then I got this Audient a couple of years ago, which is analog, but I also have some converters now where I can come back and actually Mm -hmm. mix through it if I wanted to. So yours is mostly for tracking or do you have it? A- yeah, I'm, I'm mainly tracked now and that's by choice. I mean, I have mixed, uh, I can run 10 tracks back from my interface back into the console. Yeah. And as long as I'm monitoring, you know, just the console, like when I do the turnaround to bring it back in to print it, Yeah. you know, it, it, there's a latency, so it's out of time. Right. And you have to move it to get it back to where you wanted, where it originally was. True. But as long as I'm monitoring through the console, you know, it, it sounds fine. I'm not having any problems with, uh, you know, jittering or, or anything that you get uh, coming cool. off of the interface. So the interface seems to be pretty solid in terms of that. Um, but I don't use the console as much for mixing anymore, only because... Um, once the console set, you know, and you, you finish like, you know, mix for a couple hours or you're like, all right, give my ears a break and walk away. You have to leave it. You can't yeah. move on to something else. I know. Yeah. So in the, the box, if I, if I track through the console, now I have the sound of the console on those tracks. Right. And, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of people that are out there doing it that way. And uh, I just found that, you know, I like mixing in the box. You know, I like the fact that, for example, uh, I can have an LA-2A compressor on 40 tracks if I want. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas mixing in the console, you know, I have six compressors and it's like, okay, that's all you get. (laughs) And so if you did a hybrid thing, you could have a little bit of both. Plug-ins you can, but now that starts to get pretty complicated. Now you're now you know now we're going down the road that uh, 
you know, like what you, what you're talking about. I know I've been up in the tree, like Whoa, hooking things yeah. up and trying to get things to work. And uh, I'm like, well, you've made your life super complicated for a songwriter who just wants to make albums. <laughs> well, I mean, and I've listened to your albums, your stuff sounds good. You know, it's, it's not like you're doing anything wrong. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, as an artist, you know, the way I look at it is that every single year, you know, I'm, I'm still chasing this elusive, mm -hmm. you know, you know, making re recordings and mixes that when I get done with them, I'm satisfied. Exactly. And generally speaking, I, I am pretty happy with what I've been doing. But every once in a while, you know, you go back and you listen to something from like four or five years ago and you're like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, but yeah. you can't go back and remix everything forever. No, you it's know, it's a piece of history. You just have to leave it there. Yeah, it's nice to move forward and and <laughs> just uh, carry on, really. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, over your right shoulder there? Um, it's got faders, but is it that one of those built? Oh, that's recorders? that's just a little sidecar that I used to use, you know, all the time for extra channels, just in case. Mm -hmm. um, it's a rarity because for a very small period of time, Fender, you know, Fender guitars. Sure. They tried to get into the console business. Oh, wow. And so they made these consoles. Um, and I was one of the few people that bought one. So I have it. Uh, nice. It's rarely used anymore. Huh. And yeah, I guess it's the type of thing that if somebody said, you know, hey, uh, we got, a, you know, small little you know, uh, a band, would you be willing to come out and mix us live or whatever? You know, we don't have any gear. I'd probably bring that. Okay. You know, cause it's right. portable and sure, you know, that type of thing, but it, it sits over there and I was thinking about replacing it at one point with something better. Mm. You know, you had a, you had a, 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 uh, a unit that we were talking about and I decided not to go down that road, but and then my tape machines are back there. I have a uh, a quarter track, a half track, and an eight track. Nice. And, you know, I still do use them. Is the eight track on half inch or one inch? It's on quarter inch. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then quarter the half inch. inch. With, quarter inch with Dolby. Nice. And then the half inch was four track? No, they're both two tracks. Oh, okay. Yeah, my quarter track, they're both, they're both, uh, they're both two track. They used to be what I would mix down to. Right. Because one spins at seven and a half and one spins at 15. Nice. So depending on the result you were looking for or, you know, because tape was expensive. Yep. You know, uh, spinning at 15, you use more tape and it costs more <laughs> for the band. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, yeah, seven and a half is good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy only goes at 30. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's that thing. You, you get such a clean, you know, I mean, what you play back at, at 30 hips, if the, if the machine is well-maintained, it, it sounds just like what you put in it. Yeah. When you play back at 15 hips with Dolby, it sounds different. And that was the revelation for me because I mixed into a hard disk recorder for a number of years instead of the, uh, the tape. And it was like you're standing in your speakers with a guitar and you're like, okay, this is the sound. I love this sound. You record mm -hmm. it, you play it back, 
And uh, even though it was only 16-bit, which is compact disc level, mm -hmm. when you played it back, it sounded just like what you put into it. Wow. Whereas when you recorded into tape, it always sounded different. Yeah. And then you would, when you would go back and remix that, so you know, you, you'd play with pre-definition. It's like, well, you know, if I EQ it this way and this way and this way, will mm -hmm. I get the result printed on the tape that I want? And so you can play that game too, if you want. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. How have you kept yourself uh, inspired? And uh, what do you do instead if you're down some kind of rabbit hole and you're fed up? <laughs> how, how do you recover? Well, it's not like I get fed up, but you know, there are times when you just don't have any work coming in, you mm -hmm. know? Or you don't, you know, it's and all of it seems like everything comes in all at once, or you've got nothing. But you know, I still write songs, and I still record my own stuff. So I almost always have, you know, two or three different projects in the works. Nice. You know, even if it's something that no one is ever going to hear, I don't care. Hmm. You know, I think it's oh, just yeah. uh, it's kind of like that person that paints. Absolutely. And does it really care if they, you know, they they might show it to their friends, but it's not like they're going to publish it to the world. Right. It wasn't ever about that. It was always about just wanting to write the songs and to capture. Yeah. Them. You know, so I, I'll just do really dumb things and write songs about, you know, at one point I had a cat. And so I wrote a song called Kitty. And to this day, it's one of my daughter's favorite songs. That's so great. You know, <laughs> I want to hear that one. <laughs> you know, would the rest of the would the rest of the world want to hear Kitty? No. <laughs> well, but, you, you know, know. <laughs> it, it is what it, it is. What it is. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so that's how I keep myself going. It's also practicing my craft because when you've got a lot of time and you're recording your own stuff, mm. I can pull out, like for example, a guitar amp and stick six microphones on it yeah experiment. in different positions and then just play hammer away <laughs> and then play them back it's like hmm each mic by itself has its own quality i wonder if we blend these two what happens if we blend these two what happens you know and mm -hmm. you just experiment and experiment and experiment until you finally get well that's different i like the way that sounds what what are those that's and so cool. you draw and now you have more tools for later on. Yeah. That's Same awesome. with it. I'm always remiking the drum kit in a studio, always. Tr trying different things. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, Meta Alliance book with Frank Filippetti and Elliot Shiner and all the greats in there, Phil Ramone? I There's haven't whole, seen that. whole book just on dr recording drums. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's all the best minds and what they've been doing for decades and here are the tricks which you know again a, a book a kind of book i had probably been asking for since i was 11 years old and it's like finally it's here <laughs> so great but you know a lot of my friends who do run commercial studios uh envy what you just said because they don't have a chance to experiment enough they have to keep right working the projects, getting the clients happy and out the door so they can get the next one in and they don't have time to right. explore. Well, and, you know, there was a time in my life when I was working commercially where, you know, 
I would not have been able to do the things I do now. You know, like I say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm older than I look. Um, <laughs> and all I really mean by that is that, you know, I, I do have a lot, lot more time. Yeah. You know, you've done it a lot. It's so great. Well, I'm still doing it. Actually, I just mixed um, day before yesterday. I'm going to send it off after we uh, get off of this uh, Zoom here. Um, <laughs> it's a song that is going to be the ending credits of an independent movie. Oh, I love that. Great. And it's really cool. It's uh, a really good performer playing guitar and singing. And this really great violin player who played three violin parts in stereo, you know, in, uh, in harmony. Mm. And uh, they tell me that this guy plays on Taylor Swift records. It was recorded Sweet. down at a, 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 a studio down in, in Nashville. And, you know, most of the time when you get strings sent to you, they're keyboard strings. Sure. You know, even, even if they're really well sampled strings, they sound real. Right. They're still played on a keyboard. And to have an actual real mic'd, really great violinist. Yes. Um, that's so the, much fun to listen to. To hear the texture of those strings. Oh, this yeah, you hear the you hear the you know, scratching on the bow and you know, stuff that when they're making the model of it, they're like, Oh, you know, we have to take that out. And I'm like, Oh no, no I want to accentuate that, that. I want to put that in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with the, uh, the result and we'll send it off to, you know, the artists and the producers and, uh, hopefully they'll say, yeah, this is exactly what we're looking for. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Fun. Can you say the name of the film or not yet? Uh, I don't even know the title of the film. <laughs> they sent me the last, I have the, uh, the scene. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's like a gangster film. Oh, cool. And, uh, it's, you know, they, the uh, one of the lead gangsters apparently just gets killed at the end. <laughs> and so, the you know, they, they start in uh, on a close-up of him and they start to fade out. And that's when the music's, you know, violins swell and the song starts and it starts fading away. And then the credits run. There you go. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. That's great. Yeah. Well, we should both get our original songs in some of these films, all these independent films. So many, so much music to choose from. I've had people tell me, you know, because I'm a, I'm a closet classical fan. Oh, cool. And so every once in a while, I will take, you know, the different uh, string sections and things like that that I have that, you know, obviously I don't play them. And I'll create something that's classic-esque mm. on the keyboard. Yeah. I'll just play everything and then mix it. And I've played some of these things for people and they've said, you know, you should sell this. <laughs> you know, I could hear this in the background of a movie somewhere or something like that. I'm just sure. Yeah. So I think maybe there's opportunities there. Oh, sure. You've got a lot of stuff that I think that would play in independent movies. Do you think? I think so. I mean, you might only get a 20-second snippet in there, you know, in, yeah. in a scene or something like that. But what the heck? I know. There was one time I had read an article where uh, Simon Callow was doing a film called The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. 
I would think it was mm-hmm. in People magazine. But, you know, when you finally read the article, even if it's a new issue, it was like two or three months back that they were talking about what they were just doing. <laughs> so by the time I got a hold of him, they were already sinking to tape. And, you know, they, the only spot they had left was uh, the credits. And I FedExed uh, a, a, a song of mine called Sad Cafe, which I've never even released, thinking they could throw that in and were the credits. But yeah. Uh, it didn't fit. So then by, by the time I saw the film, I went, no, that song was not right at all. Because <laughs> I didn't know anything about the film. Right, right, right. Well, yeah. that's that's where I was kind of lucky in uh, it, with this one in the sense that I was able to actually see the visual of what this would be playing over. Nice. And uh, but the com- actual track itself starts with the guitar and the violins playing together. OK. And I decided that because of the setting, I took the guitar out and only had the violins. Oh. So I went very Judy Garland. <laughs> and did you write this tune or you said it was, no, came from no, Nashville? No, this this came from, yeah, word of mouth. And so hey, we know a guy, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, but it's someone else's song because they were creating it down. Well, it's a song that's in, uh, it might be in public domain or, you know, they'll have to pay copyrights on it, but it's, it's a song that, you know, uh, most people know. It's just done in a very, very, very different way. It was uh, kind of like a big band, Frank Sinatra kind of a thing. You know, that the original, that's what everybody knows. But doing it this way with a solo acoustic guitar, yeah, um, you know, and a, and a vocal and, and, uh, and three violins, you know, it's a big departure from the original version. Yeah. It's fantastic what an arrangement will do for a song. And it's infinite how you can arrange anything. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, um, I've been fascinated recently with how sometimes a producer is just there or even the engineer or mix engineer, because now they're blurring all the terms and everybody's doing everything, which right. I've always done, but it wasn't that way before. It was pretty clear cut and it was, it was nice when it was clear cut at least for the credits on albums and such. But mm-hmm. there is that whole style of like capturing something and not putting your taste and your mark on it. And right. then there's some fantastic examples of how people who have really made that song come alive. Like I have basics, dry tracks to instant karma. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's nice. It's a great song. Still love it. But it doesn't sound anything like the hit record without Phil Right, Spike. right. And yet I felt like a lot of Phil Spector's stuff on All Things Must Pass was way over the top. It's like I would rather hear some of the cleaner versions when they were rehearsing them that I have the alternate takes of than the finished mixes. But then Bob Clearmountain's Born in the USA mix took yeah. that whole thing to a whole new level because they did a thing. I think it was on Mix with the Masters where they showed you the dry tracks. And here was Bruce working so hard. And it was like the band wasn't there supporting him. It was yeah. just like la 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 playing it in like an ensemble room somewhere, you know, <laughs> and it didn't sound anything again like the hit song until he put that gun shot sounding snare sound. Right. Those right. Fantastic things that just put it right over the finish line. You know, like it's it's interesting because a lot of times somebody could ruin a song that way. And yet that whole tasting, like, I guess, how much spices are you going to put into something? You wrecked the meal and we got to start again or too many cooks or it's perfect. Hmm. Well, I've always advocated and it's not always possible, 
but the principal writer of the song, when I work with groups, a lot of times I'll like them to come in and before I get too far along, you know, I'll get it. So it's like, okay, you know, this sounds right now. It sounds like, like a really good demo. It's not mm-hmm. a record yet, but we're yeah. getting there. And I like to have them come in and actually sit down and listen and say, okay, before I take the next step here, mm-hmm. tell me what you think. What do you like? What do you not like? Mm-hmm. Etc. And, uh, you know, that next step is like when I start to put my stamp on it. Do they ever so, give you, a, you know, where are we going with it? Do they ever give you a um, reference mix to say, or, or I always you, ask them to send me a reference mix. And I also ask them to send me mixes of like known bands that they like the way that that band sounds. Yes. So now I know where their head's at. Yes. You know, you know what to and, aim for. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of the, the indie stuff, you know, it's it's very uh, organic, uh, very, very little, like you're not going to flood the vocals with a lot of reverb and delays and things like that. And, you know, it's just a very simple form of music, a lot of them. But every once in a while, you get somebody that just wants to be really experimental and they just want like, you know, this huge kind of sound. Mm. And they'll play you different things from different bands. And you're like, all right, I, I get the idea where you want to go with this. And I just try to take their, uh, their rough mix and, and take it in that direction. But the one thing I don't want is I don't want the whole band here because now you get turn my instrument up, turn my instrument up, turn, you oh, know, and it's, and it's just like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm already four and five steps ahead of where you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm just, physically not there yet i haven't done it yet but believe me i i already know what's going to happen here nice uh and it's just you know and the worst thing is when the singer is in to sing and you've got the band there and now the singer is really nervous because Mm -hmm. he knows that if he sings one wrong note the band's going to be down his throat Ah. so it's like you know you guys need to go to dinner just (laughs) just leave me here with the singer and yeah you know come back in three hours and you know it'll be done are you familiar with uh dave o'donnell's mixes i don't i i don't know i mean maybe <laughs> yeah he's done a lot of james taylor albums and some cheryl crow and, oh okay yeah, yeah yeah and uh i love when they can get this incredibly clean precise beautiful pristine but yet it's loud and magnificent like it doesn't sound cheap there's just this incredible presence of the lead vocal it almost sounds like the whole mix could explode it's so charged with so much urgency and fantastic sound it's like how are they making this happen you know i talk to people and some of my engineer friends just go look you're competing with like the best engineers in the world with the best microphones in the best studios with the best artists with the best songs with the best preamps with the it's like it's never going to happen you're never going to get that sound and then other people have said to me it's got nothing to do with that of course you could get that sound uh, yeah i mean i'm very much performance based mm. if you give me a band that comes in they're well rehearsed and and they can really play mm-hmm. 
all I can do is screw it up. <laughs> but the old thing that I used to hear all the time when I was mixing live is, you know, we'd get a like a bad band that was the opener or something like that. And you mm. do everything you could to try to make it sound, you know, because there's an audience. They they want to be entertained. You try to make it sound good. Mm. And we used to say that, you know, you you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. <laughs> so if the band is just not good, there's mm-hmm. no amount of fixing that you can do. No. On the other hand, if the band's really good, it's going to sound good almost. I mean, yeah, you know, you, you, if you think about it, you know, through the years, I mixed a lot of things that they sounded great in the studio and they ended up on cassettes mm-hmm. being played in cars with compromised stereo systems. Oh, yeah. So who knows what it's going to ultimately sound, sound like. Mm-hmm. I mean, if what <laughs> you're looking at is the overall sound quality you know, that's, I suppose that's one thing you got to get a better system. But if what you're looking for is a great performance, mm-hmm. you can still hear that great performance on a compromised system with a bad cassette tape. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I have my methods to try to make vocal sound, you know, better. Um, have you experimented? And I guess it's one of those things where, you know, everybody's got their, their own way of, of yeah. thinking about it. Have you found a way to make a vocal incredibly present without sounding chorused and too much reverb and too much delay? One, I'll use a a compressor that like a 1176 or a DBX 160 or something like that and set it so it's only going to hit knock off the peaks like a two to one. So it's not going to like be squashing if you want to use that term. Right. But I just want to catch the very top so that, okay. Then after that, I'll stick something like an LA-2A that's basically just going to be compressing all the time, mm-hmm. but mild enough so that like probably never more than 3 dB of compression. Mm-hmm. And it can be a Fairchild. It can be a... LA-2A, you know, uh, whatever you want. Or it could be a DBX-160 uh, in the over-easy setting. Yeah. You know, you can get away with that. That's more or less just to kind of get the vocal to set where you want it to sit. Yeah. When it comes to processing reverbs, I'll use a very small reverb because I want to put it in a sense of space. So if you think about it, when there's nothing on it, because people tend to stand in front of microphones very close mm-hmm. now, as opposed to, you know, watch the old films way back when, and they stood back here. Mm-hmm. So now when you're this close, you don't really hear a lot of the room. Yeah. Well, what I do is I put the room back into it. So the vocal, instead of being dead up the center, mm-hmm. now when you put that room, it kind of does that. It's still in the middle, but it's just a little bit wider. Nice. Then from there, if I want to make it even that little bit more wider, I'll stick a plate on it. And you can either elongate the amount of reverb. If you really want to hear the plate, you know, you can make it long enough so you hear the tail. Right. Or you can shorten the plate up so that when the music is playing, when they get done with the phrase that they're singing, 
you really don't hear the reverb, but what you've done is the vocals even widened out that much further. Nice. Um, then if I really, really want to hear a reverb tail or something like that, you know, you can, you can put something else on there, you know, a hall or, you know, uh, I, I'm still one of these guys that you, likes to use digital delay or a yeah. delay on a vocal. Yeah, I like it too. And I, and I get the vocal sometimes in time with the music. Sometimes I'll just play with it so it's slightly out of time because you hear it better. Yeah. You know, if, if, if the delay is exactly the same as the drum kit tempo, especially if it's on the grid, mm. you, you can't hear the delay because the drums are going to play over it. Yeah. You know, kick, snare, kick, snare is going to be stopping that bop, 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 you know, that you're getting from a delay. So you can just play around with the delay. And, and there's oftentimes where you can take a vocal. Now you've got it wider, but with the delay, you can also make it front to back deeper sounding. Yes. That's super cool. Yeah. And, you know, I'll play around with it until I finally get it to the point where when you listen to the vocal in solo, you're like, wow, you know, that's a lot of effects. <laughs> then you turn the music on and it all goes away. I know. And it it's sounds like gone. nothing's there. Yeah. Right. So great. So that's, it's, yeah. It's definitely part of the polish of making something sound like a record rather than just a little live demo just written on like right. cassettes we used to use, capture the idea kind of recording, you know? Right, right. The whole professional thing. Have you played around, I'm sure you have, with uh, compressors the way Jack Joseph Quig talks about and how you can actually affect the groove between the attack and release times. Oh, with a pump and release. Yeah. yeah. With, with drum kits for sure. Yeah. Because you, I have definitely messed up some of my own grooves. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, you know, I try not to over compress drums. I mean, that seems to be the big thing now is, you know, let's saturate them. Let's make them dirty. You know, you know I came from an era where everything sounded dirty anyway, because it was going into tape machines and, oh. you know, going through consoles and things like that. We strive to try to make things as clean as we possibly could in the recording. Because there was And so the cleaner the recording, the better. Because there was so much harmonic distortion. Yeah, so I try to just, you know, get the drum kit so that it just sounds, you know, big and nice and round and clear. Yeah. And then if, if the act, you know, or the, uh, uh, the people that are, uh, you know, paying me to mix it, if, if they want it to me more compressed and dirty and saturated, you know, I can do that, but, <laughs> um, I try not to, I usually like to let the drums, if, especially if they're really well recorded drums, right. You know, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, every once in a while, you, like I had a band that they wrote great songs. Uh, they were marginal singers. You know, they were fantastic, but they were good. Mm. But I thought their songs were great. And uh, they recorded the drum kit with SM57s nice. and an AT2020 over the top. So, you know, $100 microphones. Yeah. And... I said, there's really only one way to go with this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really dirtied it up and saturated it and it made a huge sounding, uh, and in the context of the mix, it sounded great. But, you know, when you played it back in solo, it was like, man, that's a real dirty sounding drum kit. <laughs> well, the mastering engineer, when he got it, he was like, 
what's on that kick drum? And I said, an SN57. He's like, I have never sounded, heard an SN57 sound that good. <laughs> I was like, well. You tell that there was something completely different about it. Well, and a lot of the sound of that kit was the overhead. Yeah. And so it must have been just, tuned well, played well, and in a good space. That it, Well, no, it was in like a living room. So it was a bad oh. space. But it worked for that, for what they were doing. I mean, it just mm. worked. Everything came together. Yeah. Three of the songs on that album got played on regional radio. Oh, that's great. So they became kind of like, you know, semi-popular. Good there for them. Go. Yeah. I think it's a gigantic playing field. I keep saying that over and over again. It's like almost anything goes from absolutely horribly recorded to fantastically recorded. And everybody's listening to everything in between because their yeah. band is, that they like, that's what they have, you know, and, and that's fine. But, you know, like for me, striving after some of these things we're talking about and learning more and more has been super exciting. Um, what about, like I heard um, White Sea from White Sea Studios talking about looking at a graphic EQ, not a graphic mm -hmm. EQ, regular EQ on the master bus and seeing that the levels were way, because he does mastering for some folks besides mm -hmm tracking and or mixing and he was talking about how the low end was like billowing out you know it was way over minus 36 peak you know minus 24 even up higher some of it was mm -hmm. zero he was saying if i could just tame these things then i could make that thing sound like an actual real record you know and i thought that was such a great uh guideline because I didn't get a chance to record in professional studios or be an engineer or an assistant or, and so sometimes you don't know how much you're actually capturing because if everything yeah. is gigantic and you're not taming it down or you're not high passing and low passing, you don't even know sometimes how much is there because yeah. your speakers aren't representing it. They're not giving it back. And some of the other amazing engineers I've been speaking to just said, I've never heard of anything like that. That's ridiculous. And I think it's because those engineers were working on beautiful Neve consoles with fantastic bands, capturing anything they wanted and having a professional mastering engineer take care of it. But now yeah. a lot of us are mastering for ourselves. You have to think about these things. Yeah. I mean, the rooms that we work in have an awful lot to do with the decisions that we make because what you're hearing you know, if you're in a big room with high ceilings and, you know, you don't have any boundaries anywhere as near your speakers, you're mainly just going to hear the speakers, mm. you know, in near field anyway. Um, I'm in a small room here. So I've over the years, little by little, I mean, it seems like every year goes by and I make a small sonic improvement to try to make the room as neutral as possible. Mm. And I'm mixing with uh, right now, my near fields are Neumann's. And I don't mix real loud because it's a small room. You know, they always tell you that, you you know, 85 dB. It's like, well, that's in a bigger room. 85 dB in here would kill me. I know it's too loud. So I mix it a lot quieter as per recommendations. And what I basically do is I, in a, a lot of ways, I take the room out of the equation mm -hmm. because all I'm listening to for the most part is the speakers. Now the console does affect the way that it sounds and such, but I've gotten to where I can hear what comes through these speakers 
And I know how that's going to translate elsewhere. Nice. But it's not unusual for people to put a lot of low end, you know, in their recordings <laughs> and not really realize that it's there. Um, and, and one of the practical considerations with having a lot of low end, like, like real low end, like below 30 hertz, is that if that stuff's down there, when you try to play it on a system, or say a car stereo or whatever, that system will try to reproduce that stuff and you can't hear it. So it's going to eat up all the power in your system trying to reproduce stuff yeah. you can't hear. Yeah. You know, so mastering engineers will high and low pass, mm -hmm. you know, at least at 20. Yep. I usually, if I'm doing something for somebody, I'm not a mastering engineer by any stretch, but if somebody says, you know, can you bring this up to broadcast level so that we can play it back when you hear what it's going to kind of sound like on the record, mm. um, I'll use isotope. But I high pass at 30 only because, you know, tape machines didn't really go below 30 too much. <laughs> you know, good ones, you know, maybe down to 25, but you really didn't get anything below that anyway, other than rumble. Wow. So I'll pass at 30 and I think it makes it sound punchier. Yeah. You know, and it's, since it's not going to be a final version, it's just for them to listen to. What the heck? I had to laugh earlier when you were talking about how each band member would say, make me louder or make me louder. If yeah. I'm playing all the instruments, I'm doing that with myself. Oh, no, this should be loud. No, this should be loud. And then before yeah. you know it, everything's way too loud and you're bringing it all back down again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also like doing a lot of my own background vocals. And mm -hmm. I find even if I'm switching microphones, there are parts of my voice that I'll find super irritating. And if I don't notch out those frequencies, they're building up. So now there's yeah. tons of yeah. it. It's like, no wonder you think you don't like your voice, but it's not that at all. It's just that you have too much of a good thing in the same place and you've got to tame that. So well, have Sarah, you ever heard Sarah Carter's got a great uh, uh, YouTube channel and, you know, she was reinforcing the idea of notching out all kinds of things, resonances that aren't yep. serving each sound. And I thought, oh, thank God for you, Sarah. <laughs> well, one thing I always do for the most part, and not everybody does this because it takes time to, to set it up. So I'll set up two mics to begin with. And if it's going to be one person like me or a singer that's singing into the, uh, the main mic, um, we'll record the lead vocal. And it's like, all right, you know, we're going to do backgrounds. I'll, I'll switch the mic. So it's not exactly the same sonic signature. Yes. But the other thing that uh, I think is a lot of fun, and this is something you probably have heard before, um, the Michael Jackson trick. And the Michael Jackson trick is you'll sing a part and it'll be maybe that far from the microphone. So that's the lead vocal. Oh, yeah. Then he's going to sing a backup to it. He takes one step back. Yes. So in order to do that, well, now they have to turn up the mic a little bit more to get the level, which means they're going to pick up a little bit more of the room. Yeah. And so at each successive background, take another step back, another step back, another step back. Eventually, he's, you know, four feet back from the mic. Well, you know, you got a lot of room in there and everybody's like, well, you know, how do you get that presence of the sound of them singing in a room? It's like, well, there's there's one way. That's great because I don't and, sing that loud. Yeah, and it, it does work, you yeah. know, to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, singing on the mic off access. I like that too, yeah. 
you know, that's going to give you a different sonic signature, you know, that type of thing. I was doing a, a clinic in one of the recital halls at Berkeley. I was on stage singing and playing and talking about music with a bass player friend of mine, Jeff Song. And we were speaking to a full audience and there were two stereo mics facing us, separated, you know, mm -hmm. like not X, Y, or, but they were apart. And they yeah. were in the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. And when I got back the recording of the event, it was fascinating to hear it from that perspective because they yeah. were, the mics were in the middle of that space. The stereo image was reversed because they were looking at the stage, whereas I was on the stage. And as I was talking to different people, I could still see where they were sitting because of the stereo image of those mics. Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. And then there were people behind the mics. And to hear the difference between the folks who were sitting in front, who were sitting near mm -hmm. the mics, and then who were sitting behind, it was like, this is really cool. This is real acoustics, you know, like... So yeah. I, I would do that. I would put mics in the top of stairwells and record the cello from way up there besides close. And I was having a real cool time with that. My first studio, there was a stairwell that, uh, you know, you because it was, it was up on the second floor. And we used to stick a uh, guitar amp down at the bottom of the stairs and put a microphone up at the top of the stairs. Mm. And uh, you get some pretty interesting results with that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, some of those early magazines like home and studio recording and stuff, I mean, they would laugh and say, you know, put a mic in the kitchen or open up the dishwasher, put the mic in the dishwasher or even yeah. the Don was sound, right, where he was recording one of Bonnie Raitt's tunes on uh, fundamental things. They took this tiny little amplifier and stuck it in the bathroom. Just fantastic, quirky little cool things that sound so great with a band. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I draw the line, though, at putting a condom over a condenser mic that's really expensive and, and dropping it down into a jar of water so I can get an underwater sound. It's like, no, <laughs> they, they, they were going to try that for Yellow Submarine. And it was just like, uh, what does John want now? Yeah, right. <laughs> or swinging him around the studio, like put him on. Well, a yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just lay on the floor. <laughs> but you know, when you have a, you know, a, a uh, an endless budget <laughs> and four guys that you know all they want to do is get something different each time, then you end endless. up doing stuff like that. Yes, yeah. endless questions and curiosity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are you working on now? Anything that you're experimenting with and still trying to uh, find the best levels for or miking techniques? Or, or is there anything pulling your curiosity in, in that experimenting, experimenting direction? Well, aside from, you know, like right now, my, my drum kit's probably got 12 mics on it. And the idea would be to record them all at the same time and then some of them won't get used, but they're there just to see what would happen. You know, so um, mics that are pointed in, uh, you know, in a direction where they, they wouldn't be like, you know, uh, um, having one pointing straight down at the drummer's lap that um is really not going to pick up it's going to be a, a mono recording and it's like all right so if we compress the heck out of that and 
mm-hmm. you know, if we do different things to it, what will that do to the overall tone of the drums? And yeah. the idea is just to experiment with it and see what comes out of it. That's fun. The, uh, the other thing is that at Christmas time, I was given a virtual microphone uh, plug-in. So I've been playing with that. Hmm. And uh, I have to say that, you know, in some contexts, uh, it works pretty good. And the thing that's interesting about it is you record the track, you know, with the modeling microphone. But then when it comes time to mix, you call up the plug-in and you can just change the mics. And, you know, would I rather have a, a real U47 as versus the, the, the model of a U47? Well, of course I would. <laughs> You know, and and I have my, you know, I have all the classic mics in, you know, made by other manufacturers. You know, I don't have Neumanns, but I've got a 47. I have a 67. I have an 87. You know, I have a C12, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I have mics that approximate what the originals did. Yes. Um, But being able to just kind of click a button and switch them back and forth. It's like, Oh, what would this sound like on that? What would this sound like on that? That's so I think that for a lot of people that don't have a lot of money that are really looking to make good recordings, you know, I think a lot of that's coming. I think that a lot of the AI that, you know, I, I don't want people to be out of work, but I think that more and more and more, you know, people are just going to use AI to master. Yeah. You're just going to let the computer do it. I don't agree with it, but, you know, I, I think it's it's coming. Possibly. You know, yeah. one thing I'm categorically against is the fact that they model somebody's voice. So you can have like Taylor Swift singing your song because hmm. it's like an AI thing. Right. And uh, I'm just. I just don't agree with that. I mean, that's completely stealing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, you couldn't use anybody's name or likeness. My God, you shouldn't be able to use somebody's voice. Right. And right. a lot of things people have sent me said, look, it sounds like John Lennon or it sounds like Paul. It's like, I know their voices so well. There's no way that sounds even close to one of them for real. Well, with, a, with AI, you know, the way that it's, it's going, you know, you, you would be able to You'd be able to sing with your voice and then throw the plug in on it. And you'd be John Lennon. Well, that's what I mean. What I've heard so far, they haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> they haven't perfected. It's, it's it, trust me, they, they will. It's coming. They will. Yeah. And there will be some people that think it's great and they want to use it. I mean, it's, you know, you go back to the early days of hip hop mm. and they sampled, you know, finished albums. Eddie Van Halen's guitar. Right. You know? And people were just like all up in arms, like, oh, my God, you know, you've stolen my music and this, that, and everything. And now I don't think anybody even cares anymore. You know, I mean, samples that I use, I pay for. Yeah. What um, modeling mic plugin were you talking about? Um, It's made by uh, Slate. Oh, yeah. They make great stuff. Yeah. Um, There's a bunch of them that are out there. Um, that I've seen at, you know, like, you know, uh, conferences, I go to AES whenever it's down in New York city and things like that. Mm. Sphere is supposed to be very, very good. Um, well, at this point, you know, I mean, it's really hard to find bad gear now, (laughs) you know, it really is. 
I know. You know, we live in a day and age where everything works pretty well. So, uh, you know, I think Audient makes, uh, or not Audient, um, Antelope makes mm. a modeling system that is revered to be pretty, pretty, you know, pretty good. I think the biggest difference is, you know, whose mics are you modeling? And yeah. when you get done with the modeling, you know, do you tweak it to make it sound that little bit better? I mean, I've always thought that Slate's models always sounded almost like super versions of what they modeled, you know? Mm. So I, I think they might be tweaking them just slightly. And then whereas, for example, like, uh, you know, uh, waves models of things, you know, they have their own sonic sig signature. And, you know, to me, it's like once you use it and it's in a mix, <laughs> nobody's going to pick out nobody. You know, it's like, what compressor did you use? You know, yeah. nobody that listens to music cares about that. No. And then even if you had two U87s or 47s or 67s, they don't even sound the same. Well, and I'll tell you what, the worst thing in the world is to stick a really, really great, like a U87 on somebody who can't sing. Oh, I know. <laughs> because now you have a really great version of this bad vocal. <laughs> Absolutely. Have you ever tried this uh, acoustic guitar miking technique? I recorded a song of mine called Bellaby, and I had a condenser facing roughly a few inches from the 12th fret on an angle, like is common. But mm -hmm. the second one, I had seen a thing on YouTube where the guy had put the mic up over his shoulder, coming mm -hmm. behind. So it was like mm -hmm. an ear level, but over the top of the... Of facing the down on the body? Facing it down, yeah. So that it was like what your right ear hears. And that I've... space between singing into a U87 and having two Sputniks here, it was yeah. like... The most amazing thing, I just made sure it sounded balanced and that the, the voice was centered. And of course the voice, I mean, all three microphones were picking up everything, but mm -hmm. the combination was just so spacious and nice. It was like, ooh, air, this is great. <laughs> I've done it where I put the microphone facing down, but over the neck where the person's playing. You yeah. hear all the string, you hear all the string squeaking and noise and stuff like that. And, hmm. you know, it makes it sound very, very real. Of course, you know, you might not it's want not that in your recording, but it, <laughs> right. it depends. it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. No, I mean, uh, recording an acoustic guitar, if I want stereo, I'll use ORTF, the, the French method. So the two mics are, you know, they're, it's a very specific distance. The capsule have to be apart and the angle that they're at or whatever. And then I just put that in front of the oh. mic, in front of the guitar. And what ends up happening is instead of the guitar being like dead center, it, it's, it's still in the middle, but it's wide. Hmm. And then you play with the panning to move it. Nice. You know, or you play with the faders to move it because it's on two tracks. Yeah. That works pretty cool. I like that. And the thing that's great about ORTF, if you do it right, it collapses the mono perfectly. Oh, wow. So it's in, it's in, it's in really in great phase. Nice. I'm going to check that one out for sure. Or polarity, I should say. You know, my very first mixer I have in the other room, it, it's the TX AX20. Mm -hmm. And it was a four to two so that I could okay. take my four track reel to reel to the, the cassette deck. And mm -hmm. you only had a choice of left, right and center. Yep. And then I found many years later that that actually was a thing that people actually recorded and pan things just left, right, and center, like nothing in between these middle places. And um, 
not, it's just so amazing how many different things you can do. And I loved playing with um, the 5.1 in Logic. And I put okay. five of the same speakers around the room. And yeah. I couldn't wait to capture it, to bring it out to the Acura, to hear it in the ELS surround sound system. And there was nothing to capture it on. I was so disappointed. It's like, oh. I can only listen to the demo that came with the car. And I can only listen to this one, the, the Love album, <laughs> because it was recorded in 5.1 and gave you a separate disc. It's like nobody knew how to encode or decode or give it to you for right, right. consumer playback. So I'm thinking the same thing about Atmos. Everybody's going crazy about Atmos. But it's like, first of all, it's gigantically expensive to set up. And then even if we were able to record that stuff in our own studios, what would we catch it on and play it back on? You'd have to only listen to it in your own studio again. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's only I think in it, movie theaters and, and, and sound bars if they have that capacity. It, it'll, kind of it'll be interesting to see, I think, probably, you know, long after I'm doing it. But you know, the whole idea of immersive audio. And it will be interesting to see if anybody can ever come up with headphones that give you a three-dimensional, like it puts you in the middle of the sound and yes. the sounds in front of you and behind you and all around, as opposed to stereo. That's what they're working on. Yeah, because yeah, if they can do be that, easy. then you don't need to have 10 speakers in a room because right. most people can't afford that. And they're not going to do that. No, you know, that's great for movie theaters and museums and places like that, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, but the, the, the mass, you know, listening audience wants it to be as simple as possible, <laughs> you know, and it's, and, and it's kind of like the video games where you put the glasses on and, right. you know, that's what they're comparing put you to. in that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows if they'll be able to come up with it or not. Yeah. I think they will. I think uh, I was listening to, um, what's his name? Masters. <laughs> Andrew Masters. He was talking about that yesterday, uh, that they were uh, pretty, uh, pretty close to that. There was different companies he was working with or listening to examples from. And um they were in an Atmos studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Andrew Masters. He has a, a video. He was there in a front of his studio's epic home studio. The basement converted into an epic home studio. Yeah. yeah. They were talking about all that technology and those headphones and different companies working on the headphone things as we speak, I think. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, there's there's a lot of people out there now that are working with headphones. You know, it was always the no, no, you can't mix on headphones, blah, blah, blah. And I've, I've always, always checked it. all my mixes on headphones and things like that. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, you know, companies like Sonar Works that are out there that they model the, the, the your model, you know, the, the, your headphones so that it gives you a flat response versus the way that the headphones were designed. Yeah. I, mean, I don't, you know, that can be good and bad, I guess, but. Right. Um, I remember. People George, are coming up with great mixes on headphones. Yeah. I've always checked on headphones too, and all different kinds, because I've always enjoyed listening on headphones, going into the music, probably for yeah. that sub, uh, uh, submersive experience, you know, um, because it matters to me 
that it sounds exciting when you put the headphones on and there's something to listen for yeah. and interesting things are happening. And I've always uh, enjoyed when people have said they've liked listening to my mixes because they sound good in headphones. That's yeah. cool. That's super Well, cool. my first good recording speakers, the first ones I ever had, and people will laugh, but they were NS10s. Oh, yeah, I still have them. You know, the bookshelf speakers from the 80s, right? Oh, no, it's not an NS10. And, you know, I did the obligatory, put the tissue paper over the tweeters and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they were great if you wanted to, you know, hear what was going on in the mid-range. Yes. But the only way that I could really ever check what was going on in the low end was to use headphones. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'd listen to something that was commercially released and say, all right, you know, what are the bass and the kick drum doing in, in this song? And then what does mine sound like? Right. You know, and you almost always have to fix something. Flabby and too much. And, and again, if it's blowing up and you don't know it, you don't even know what frequencies to tame, but you can see it on an EQ. It's like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Pull it down, yeah. you know. <laughs> Once you see it, I don't know. It's it's still a matter of taste, knowing what tools to use at the right time and what things are going to be helpful, whether it's your ears picking up on the problem or your eyes picking up on the problem. I don't think that's a, uh, a better or worse situation. It's just catch the problem and fix it. Well, and the, the one thing I think that, you know, I still prefer to see use real, you know, human beings for mastering is yeah. that it's what they do. They work within all the different genres. They, they know what works and what doesn't. Right. And using like AI, it's just going to use a, a modeling of, you know, kind of like, well, you know, this kind of song usually sounds like this. Yeah. So you're going to get more of a generic and it might sound pretty good. I mean, some people might really like the way that something like that sounds. But I think that if you want something that's unique, you know, to your, to your piece of music, Yes. You know, trusting it and giving it to somebody, you know, who, who you do trust, you know, and there's different uh, mastering services that are out there that, you know, you use one and you're like, well, th that was pretty good. But then you use another. It's like, wow, that was really good. And someone, you just keep going back. Someone who's actually listening and feeling your music to give it the right thing. <laughs> yeah you know, yeah it's like they they're knowing how to complement it and take it further the way you just took it further for their mix that's well and important. you know ai would take that that billowing low end you're talking about and it would just flatten it right out yeah or, or dip it down below zero yeah just to, it's going to cut it down by you know uh you know 16 db or something like that yeah and, that's and a mastering engineer might be like all right you know how obviously they intended for the low end to have a, a quality to it. How can I work with that and still make this so that it's going to play back on all systems and be pretty good? Yeah. And you know, they'll, there's compromises and they'll, they'll get you there. Yeah. I've always loved the results. I've often used um, Jonathan Weiner at MWorks and mm -hmm. uh, I remember bringing in one album, I had 16 tracks and one song. I said, well, we're going to just leave this one completely alone. And I was so disappointed. It was like, no, you should be thrilled. I was like, why am such I a paying good you job? so much? It doesn't need to be mastered. Yeah, that one doesn't need to be mastered. It's like, but, but I want you to make it better, you know? And then there's only so far they can make it better, you know? So 
yeah. then I stopped using mastering engineers. But I, I think as I had gotten better at mixing, a lot of my stuff would have sound better had I used a professional mastering engineer. I almost went out to, to uh, uh, the Netherlands to mm-hmm. visit Whitesey and, and his friend George, because George is this fantastic, George Konings is this amazing, tasty, artfully beautiful musician who masters and he even masters stuff online, but I like, I wanted to be there. So yeah, I almost took my new album Snowcake out to the Netherlands and said, I want to sit there and watch him master this. And I thought you're insane. (laughs) Well, I've, I've been in lucky enough to be in mastering sessions and me too. Oh yeah. You know, if you go there expecting that they're going to be, you know, doing all this magical stuff and cranking on knobs. And I mean, it's, it's very subtle. Yes. You know, uh, especially if the mix is good, you know, the, you know, and the, the, the big thing there is, you know, when you walk out of there and you listen to what you gave them as versus what they're, what's going to go out to the public. Yeah. And you listen to it on compromised systems and in a car and on headphones or whatever, their version translates to everything right. for the most part. Your version sounds great in your studio. That's it. And it, it might right. sound pretty good in a couple of other places, but most likely it doesn't sound good everywhere. That's quite true, possibly. But it's probably because of those resonant frequencies that I didn't tame that they knew to tame, right? Well, their room is a lot better than yours and yeah. mine and everybody else's. Yeah. Well, I, I just started teaching a bunch of... Uh, music production and engineering classes at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've been teaching there in the guitar department since 1984, but it was nice to be recruited to go into that department. And they have a mastering suite that Jonathan Weiner set up in a few. There others. you go. And I thought, okay, this is the place to test everything. So yeah. this whole past semester, I was listening to all my mixes and questioning my ears at home and what my setup was giving me and what I thought I was hearing and how it was translating. And I started making all these changes. And then I was chasing my tail going insane, going, yeah, I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. And it turned out that my students were going, no, no, don't change anything. They said one of the drivers blew on one of the big mains and they only didn't replace both. And you're not getting the right information. I'm like, no wonder it sounded like the regular bass frequencies at about a hundred Hertz were like too far back. And this was too far forward and everything was brittle. And I was like, God, I'm like deluding myself. I thought I was okay at this. What's happening? You know? (laughs) And because I kept, I kept changing what I had trying to, make it sound good there, which was impossible. Yep. Yep. And Fab DuPont again would say to me, trust your ears, trust your ears. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, ultimately the way I look at it is that if I'm mixing something for somebody else and I like it, that's the first step. Definitely. But, you know, what it's really got to come down to is that they have to like it. Yeah. You know, they're the client, give them what they want. Mm-hmm. And even if they say, well, you know, we should do this or this and you don't agree with it. It's like, yeah, but that's what they want. Oh, sure. My brothers are both graphic artists and they have to do that all the time. And most of the time they probably don't even want to put their name on it when they're done because they're like, they didn't listen to half the ideas that I had. And now subpar work is leaving with my name on it, you know? Well, you know, 
in this day and age, if if you can get your name on an album credit for mixing it, you're lucky. <laughs> I know because there's hardly any credits anywhere. They don't put credits on. You know, they don't give you credit. You know, yeah. it's uh, now my website. I've got a bunch of pictures of a bunch of different albums and things like that. And I did set up a page to put uh, sound. You know, like examples and things like that. Yeah. And then I just turned around and said, you know what? Uh, all that stuff's easily found, you know, on YouTube and, and Spotify and all these bands have all their albums on all the streaming services. Mm. If people want to hear what it sounds like, they can just go there and, and listen to it, Good you know? Idea. So, so I just don't put yeah. it on my website cause I don't need to. No, I just put the credits. <laughs> and it's, you know, I mean, I'm not getting work from my website anyway. It's yeah. not like people are seeking me out that way. It's all word of mouth. Yeah. The best stuff is, you know, you know, and, and I don't really think we have much to fear with any technology or advancements in what's happening in AI or any of those things. Cause I like any other tool and like any other device mm -hmm. or invention, there will be amazing big hearted people using the technology for the good. And there will be some people using it for evil. It's just the way the world is ever since the beginning of time. And uh, if there's some ways that those tools can benefit us and they become affordable, maybe you and I will be using certain things to our own advantage. But yeah. until then, I, you know, I don't see any reason worrying about it or fearing it. I remember when they were fearing synthesizers and they were fearing uh, yeah. in the guitar department, there was a big meeting when tuners were for sale. And they were like, no, these kids have to learn how to tune by ear. And it was like, of course they do, but they can't hear the difference yet. So when the light says it's sharp and the other one says it's flat, this is a good thing. They need something to help teach where their ear is so that they can narrow down, this is actually in tune. Well, but and tuners them, are an industry standard. So I would think that you'd want to teach them about that too. Well, at the time they weren't, they were brand new. And again, ah. the guitar department was fearing it. Like, you know, oh my God, and, and you just, it, it was like fearing laptops and stuff like that. I'll never use a computer. I heard one of them say, and it's like, yes, you will. <laughs> I can remember when digital music first started coming out, you know, compact discs and things like that. Mm. And I was still recording on tape at the time, but I became a very early adopter and I still have it. It's up in that rack up there. It's a Sony PCM unit. I have it down there. Okay. Yeah, and I had a and, one that did it all in one, which was nice. Yeah, so you used a, uh, a videotape. Yep. Yep. And then still have that's where ADAT kind of came from, that whole thing. Right, and then I had four ADATs. And I would record through tape, but I would use the PCM unit. That's instead of putting the master on another tape, which is now it's another generation down, Right. I would put it on the, uh, you know, the ADAT, so to speak. So, you know, you have a digital copy of it. Bring it back. And I was doing that really early on. And there were all these people that I knew. There was a place down in Ithaca, New York, that it's no longer there. I don't believe it's called, it was called CAF Audio. And uh, the guy who was the engineer down there was pretty well revered. He won some, you know, different... Uh, accolades and things like that and he was one of these guys who was like yeah you know I, I don't really like that digital stuff or whatever but then i kept telling him how, how good it sounded 
So I brought my unit down there one time. <laughs> he took a recording of a Gaelic harp, ran it through the console, sounded beautiful, mm. into my unit. And simultaneously put it onto a two-inch tape. He played back his, his tape, and it sounded fantastic. sounded great. Really, really nice. He played my digital. And now he's going A, B, A, B with the button on the console. And he looks back at me and says, how much does one of those cost? Yeah. <laughs> and what it really came down to was that his two-inch tape spinning at 30 ips, I thought, sounded better. But... Mm the cost of maintaining that unit and the cost of tape and all that compared to what you could buy a PCM unit and a VHS recorder mm -hmm. was a fraction. And I think that that's been the biggest change in music as time's gone on is that mm. it's just gotten so inexpensive to be able to make music. Yeah. Comparative to how it was. And I've I've been one for sure that has benefited from it because now yeah. there's actually recording toys that are semi-professional, if if not totally professional, that I'm able to afford. And I'm very thankful yeah. for it. That's why I've, you know, obviously like the toys and the buttons and the <laughs> knobs and the switches. So I'm not I've never been against technology. Well, I love that audience console. You do? Oh yeah. I've You've I've seen... heard them. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. What would you do with one if you had one? Uh, well, I'd probably still keep the sound crap because I, I like the sound. Yes. You know, there's a sound that this gives that you can't get, but I would just use the sound crap for tracking. I might consider mixing, you know, going back to mixing through a console if I had something like that. Really? Oh, that's good to know. Maybe. Because Maybe. I can I can do three different things. I can just use the mixer with the tape machine. Mm -hmm. I could just track through it to logic. Yep. And I can mix hybrid or mix just on the console. But, uh, you know, I've been trying to figure out how do I want to use this now that I have it? Because I, I realized how much faster I got in the box. I thought, what are you doing? This is insane. You know, <laughs> but there's so many fun things to do with it. I was. Yeah, I, 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 I still live mixing. I love mixing with faders. I really yeah, do. Yeah. But. You know, the other console that I would consider, you know, SSL makes an origin. Oh, right. I, I saw those at, at AES and I was playing around with that. You know, they were passing signal through it. And, uh, and I was just messing around with that and uh, with the bus compressor that they, SSL bus compressor. And I was just having a ball. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, if this wasn't $30,000, I'd be thinking about it. <laughs> This has a built-in compressor too, but I realize everything coming from Logic is still way too hot. You know, I have yeah. to really turn it back so that this doesn't just catch too quickly because there's no way to attenuate what's going into that mixer. What comes out of my interface that goes into the console, uh, I've been able to figure out as close as I can that it comes back because the console, when you play things through it at zero, it's at about minus 18. Right. And that's what I've always recorded at. And when it comes back through the, uh, you know, because there's a pad at the top of, of each channel and, and the uh, I've got uh, settings on there so that when it plays back, I kind of keep that unity. Okay. So what goes out into Pro Tools and plays back, it, it plays it back at the same volume. 
You keep so it's a little minus bit of 18? a balancing act. Yeah, about minus Basically. 18. Okay. And that, you know, that translates to my tape machines and everything else. Um, but then when I send clients home with stuff, I'll normally, you know, instead of being DBFS, I'll go Luffs. Yeah. And I'll give them minus 14 because that's Spotify. Yeah. And so now it's a little bit more of a broadcast level. Nice. Minus 18 is kind of quiet. Definitely. You know, so, but the nice thing about recording at that level, and I've got my monitor controller because I have several sets of monitors that I, I own and I can go back and forth. They're all balanced. So they play back at the same Me level. Too, yeah. I just hit the buttons. But the nice thing is that there's a dial on it. And I've got different settings that it's like, okay, if something's recorded in minus 18, it's set here. So I can, and I listen back at the same volume, no matter what I'm listening to, you know, Spotify minus 14, you know, YouTube, things like that. So I've got little right. marks on it and now I'm listening back. So I'm not cheating myself thinking that something sounds better because it's louder. Definitely not. Yeah. I didn't realize, you know, I, I buy a lot of stuff used and I get a lot of endorsements for things just because I ask. Mm -hmm. and discounts on stuff. I hardly ever pay full price for anything. I didn't realize that this was 11 years old when I bought it. And okay. the gentleman who sold it to me probably knew that there was something wrong with the master bus, but I didn't. So while I was setting all this stuff up and learning how everything works and goes in and out being digital and being analog and buying cables after cables after cables, I realized when I really got into trying to mix on here, that when I put it up to zero, one level went completely sky high and the other one stayed beneath. Wow. And I felt like the stereo image not only was skewed, but like everything was collapsing weird and strange. And uh, I took a video of it, played some sound samples, sent, to audience, sent it to audience and said, you know, what's going on? And they said, oh, sounds like you need a new master bus card. So they sent me this giant thing Mm -hmm. And I took apart the, the mixer and resoldered this thing in and stuff. And now they're all balanced and stuff. And I haven't been down here since. <laughs> I, I haven't been trying it out to see how much better it is. And I think well, you, that probably you, explained everything. You posted, I saw that you were doing that. <laughs> and I was waiting for the video of you kind of like, you know, okay, here I am taking the back off. And I was waiting. I was like, all right you know, how much soldering is she going to have to do? And, you know, all that kind of Very stuff. Very little. But, but the only but, soldering uh, I had to, to do was on the mic, uh, uh, on the talkback mic that was built in. Uh, and I don't even use that because who am I talking to? Hello, me. When, <laughs> when I use this console live, we pulled out the channel and I disconnected the talkback mic because people would lean on the console and hit the button. And uh, if you push on the talkback mic when it's live, that's bad. Oh, my God. That's, oh my God. So <laughs> it, it works now, but because uh, I, I resoldered it, but you know, we, we would always, you know, it's like, well, let's disconnect these things. I was very concerned trying to think about taking it apart. It's very interesting how this whole thing is put together with taking off the sides and then things just open up. But basically, it was just a couple of those ribbon cable things. Yeah. Just the three wires for the xlr that was only I, I can't believe that it doesn't probably sound like worlds better yeah it probably does <laughs> i will find out today <laughs> and now the other thing i need to fix is i had gotten two channels of a knee vr mm -hmm. and there's a couple of buttons that don't stay depressed oh so, interesting 
my friend Stephen Weber over at Power Station was saying, oh, no, I, my friend Brett here probably has some extra buttons he can send you. And But I have one preamp that goes wacky. So I'm in the middle of singing and I've got a dialed in sound that is just wonderful. And then all of a sudden it goes super overdrive without you wanting it to. And it's like, mm. yeah, I have to do a, a, a test for him now to figure out what part. Almost sounds like something's heating up. Does it have tubes? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it almost sounds like, you know, maybe the tube's overheating. I haven't opened it up to see what's inside, but yet once it, you know, once it gets to a certain temperature or something like that, after it's been out for a while, it freaks out. That's what it sounds like. Maybe. So I, I got to see if I have the uh, cojones to see if I want to take that apart and see if I can put those new switches in and put that in. It's like, hmm, I've never had any electronics courses either. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'll figure it out. It's disconnect this, reconnect that. You know, the, the number one thing I think that stops us from doing things is the fear that we're going to fail. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely try things. I'll take guitars apart and all kinds of stuff and learn. And well, if you can do that, you can fix the switches. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, this has been super fun. Cool. Yeah. Anything, it was fun to do. Anything else you want to share? Because you've got a lot of cool experience there. I really enjoyed what you had to say. I guess the only thing that I would say more, you know, if there's anybody that's listening to this that, you know, wants to do this for a living that's younger, you know, you teach a lot of students. I don't know how many of your students would actually watch your your show here. My but, show. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. I'm talking I mean, for my own you know, benefit it's your, here. <laughs> it's, your, it's your talk show. My talk show. But, you know, it's not something that gets handed to you that happens overnight. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's it's kind of like people that are in, uh, you know, the entire entertainment business, whether it's television or movies or whatever. Mm. They're just it's it's a throwback to the days where you just got to pay your dues. Yeah. And, you know, you just go in, um, be respectful, speak when spoken to <laughs> and, you know, just be willing to do, I mean, obviously within reason, be mm. willing to do, you know, what you're asked to do, but simple things like being on time. Yeah. If you promise somebody that you're going to do something, do it. Right. Keeping your word. You know, everybody is going to realize when you first start out that you might not be, you know, the best engineer on the planet or the best mixer, even though you might think you are, you know, <laughs> trust me, you're, you're not, <laughs> but you know, in time you get better and you get better and you get better and you get better. And eventually, you know, you start to realize that, okay, I've seen this set up before something very similar to this. And I know what will work in this. And you just get faster hmm. because you've been around it. And in time, you'll get your big break. Now here's, here was my big break. I was working in the studio. I was the assistant. I was pretty much doing what I was told. David had this guy that was coming in. He was a songwriter, guitar player, piano player, and it was time to do vocals. Hmm. David comes in and says, because he had just gotten a new girlfriend about a month before. And 
I can't remember the night of the week, but there was this thing that they always did this one night of the week. And it was the night this guy wanted to record vocals. <laughs> so he said, um, do you think you'd be okay handling this session by yourself tonight? Because <laughs> we want to do our thing. Yeah. And they said, sure. Guy shows up and he's like, oh, Dave's not here. And I'm like, no, it's just going to be you and me tonight. And we recorded. He had an Atari uh, tape machine, uh, big Viking console. And things went out, went off pretty flawlessly. We went back and forth between two tracks and got, you know, we kind of bouncing things back and forth. So we got you know, when we got to the final take, we sat down you know, and, and listen to it. So it was more or less comping to tape, if you want to call it that. Mm. And he was thrilled. And he went back and he told Dave, he's like, yeah, you know, working with Bruce was great. Well, yeah, suddenly I was doing my own sessions. That's fantastic. So it wasn't anything that was pre-planned. It was just luck of the draw, but there it was. Well, Dave knew. He knew he could probably trust you. At well, that. he knew I was going to blow anything up, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's, you know, you, you just have to wait your turn and it'll happen because people move around, you know, people get a better gig and all of a sudden you come to work and you're like, yeah, well, you know, so-and-so is not here today because uh, she just took a job elsewhere. And so now all of a sudden mm -hmm. there's an opening, you know, do you want to, you want to give this a try? You want to step up? Wow. So great. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, You've worked with really cool people. You've got a cool setup. You've been doing all your own music as well. It's like, how could we be even happier? This is just so good. It's so cool to be us. Yeah. Yeah. There <laughs> it's you so go. fun. I mean, you know, when you, when you count your blessings and when you think of everything you've ever really always wanted, uh, I mean, even for me, there's so many friends that I knew went to Berkeley together or uh, knew of who dropped out of Berkeley when I was a student and they went off and built careers as performers and recording mm -hmm. artists and such. And so many of them are coming back now saying, you did it right all along. <laughs> we want to teach at Berkeley. And I'm like, what? You know, because we all think the grass is green or someplace else. But when you think about how much freedom I've always wanted and time to work on my own stuff and the ability to be able to record and, and make all my own music as often right. as I have, especially since I stopped moving and changing locations physically, uh, it, it's been exactly what I've always wanted all along. And I know people who have been out on the road forever with other people going, one of these days I'm going to be able to make my first album, you know? So yeah. it doesn't matter what they chose or how much money they're making, they're all still wishing for something else. And you've got to turn around and, and look at what you've got and what you thought your original things were, because a lot of times you've hit those goals and you don't realize it because evolution keeps you moving forward and there are new goals and you keep thinking, you right, right. Yet. But there's, there's no get there to get there. You know, nobody tells you that, you know, so I want to well, I, get there. I think for me, one of the things that I've always been able to take away with this is that I think I've had some positive influences on, you know, other people, you know, younger artists that have come in that watch me mix and now they're doing it themselves. That's or, cool. you know, in the case of like my daughter, you know, she's professional down in Nashville. So nice. And she's working on an album and stuff like that. And, you know, my parents were both very, very talented. My mother sang with Guy Lombardo. So I'm always constantly joking that, you know, I'm wow. positive proof that, uh, talent skips a generation 
<laughs> you went from my mother to my daughter and then they both blow me away completely. And, uh, but I think that, you know, my daughter being around uh, the studio and microphones and all that kind of stuff, I think, you know, that had a certain amount um, of influence to make her want to make music. And, uh, you know, we gave her uh -huh. her first guitar when she was like 13 or whatever age it was. And, you know, she would always be playing mine, but when she got her own, then she really took off. That's sweet. You know, and she made her first album with a, uh, a guy that we used to work with meatloaf. Um, <laughs> she made her first album at 16. That's fantastic. And, you know, I don't know where you started, but I played in all these really, you know, tiny little coffee houses and then beer smelling bars and all that kind of stuff. My daughter's <laughs> first gig was in front of 8,000 people. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> like the Newport jazz festival. Does, it was at, uh, in Syracuse at a thing called the balloon festival. Nice. It had air balloons and they had bands out there. <laughs> they get about a crowd of about 8,000 people. And so it was like, wow. okay, here she is. <laughs> and I'm like looking around going like, wow, you know, I don't really know if I've ever actually even ever played in front of an audience this big. <laughs> I did for seven and I was so excited. It felt like smoke was coming out of my ears. <laughs> yeah. And thankfully it was with a Beatle band where our first three songs were always the same three. So it yeah. was always, I saw her standing there into I want to hold your hand into all my loving. And in the middle of all my loving, I'm doing the triplets and I'm thinking to myself, why are all these people here? Is McCartney landing in a helicopter or something? Like what's going on with this festival? And wait a minute, what song are we playing? Am I with the drummer? <laughs> it was just like, get back in your body, you know? And meanwhile, yeah. the triplets are just sailing along and I'm going, yep. thank God these first three songs are the way we always start this show because I'm like yeah. out to lunch. <laughs> well, that, that's, that sets you off having that choreographed like that because, you know, you settle in and the whole rest of the show is going to be great because you, all yeah. the jitters are gone. Yeah. And you get used to bad sound. Like, hey, these are some good sound questions I should ask you since you've been doing live sound. When I've talked to some teachers at Berkeley, uh, friends of mine who have done a bunch of live sound, and I've said, you know, I sing quietly on stage. I don't know how they ever got Suzanne Vega's voice out above the band whispering, mm -hmm. because I used to be able to hear her at the shows doing some of the quietest things. And my bands, I have trouble and they can't turn me up because the more they turn me up, the more they turn up the band coming through my mic. So even if they do multi-track recording of the live, they can't believe how much crap is on my vocal mic because it's the whole band because their yeah. monitors are so darn loud. And if you're working with folks who have hearing loss and you don't, and you want things nice and quiet and they're blasting everything, I'm like using noise canceling headphones and earplugs upon earplugs and big ear, minus 45 dB on top of that. And yeah. <laughs> And then I'm completely isolated because I just hear my guitar and my voice and everything else is far away. But with all those setups and all those shows we did, I used to get used to, oh, yeah, this is about as much low end as I normally hear in my headphones. And this is comfortable to sing over for this. And still, they had trouble putting me out over the band. Well, most club acts have a monitoring system where, you know, it's a bunch of wedges on the floor. And the only thing that comes back in those wedges is... The whole band. The vocal. Oh, just the You vocal. know, the vocal mics. That would have been They're nice. not putting guitars and things like that in the wedges because it's like you have your amp right behind you. Why right. do you need to have that in your wedge? You don't, yeah. Now, with the bigger stages, 
almost everybody would get two wedges and then there's side fills. The drummer has his own system back there. The lead yeah. singer would get a wedge right in the front and two wedges on the sides and they would all get their own personalized mix. So, you know, what do you want to hear? I want to hear the bass. I want to hear my guitar. I want to hear a little bit of the drums, but don't kill me with the drums. Yeah. I want to hear the singer, you know, or whatever, but my background vocal has got to be louder than the lead singer because I want to hear myself. It's that type of thing. So once you get that dialed in and everybody gets what they want, they're living kind of like in their own little world. It's kind of like, you know, and, and then in-ears is the same thing. Sure. You know, everybody gets their own mix. It's like working yeah. in a studio, but you're live. Because you have to shape your sound. You have to shape what you're playing. You have well, to everybody's have got a different opinion. What sounds good? Exactly. And you've got to feel comfortable to do your thing. So, you know, that's, but unless you have a, a monitoring console that's got the matrix that's able to do that, mm. then, you know, most local bands don't have that type of a system, so they can't. It's mainly just, you know, foldback monitors are your vocals because that's the one thing that's not, you know, uh, loud enough on stage. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, and anything that's amplified, like if you make a board tape of something like that, it's anything terrible. going through the console that's being amplified like the drums are the loudest things in the mix and the vocals are usually very loud in board mixes. Yeah. You know, the guitars are usually drums, quiet drums because you don't have to reinforce them as much because they're just loud. Vocal. <laughs> I used to bring a little Alesis mixer, split my guitar signal, put it in my headphone mix, put it out to the front. And then I'd also have my mic mm -hmm. uh, and, and just be able to dial in what I needed from those two things. But, you know, the singer would come over playing a tambourine. All of a sudden, I'm like overwhelmed with tambourine in my ear. I'm going, what's going on? I'm almost falling over from the sound in my head. Yeah. Being yeah. disoriented with a tambourine. And I realize he's playing near my mic. <laughs> it's like, get away from my mic with that tambourine. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. When we played on bigger stages, it was great. Because then you could hear the drums and hear everything. And everybody had their own space basically. well with the bigger stages it helps keep everybody you know playing in tune and in time because sometimes you can't hear the guitar player all on the other side of the stage neil young tells an interesting story about um the first band that he was in there with steven stills you know hello mr soul and and that group mm. um buffalo springfield and he said they were playing such huge stages that they had gone from being this little band to being this huge band he said that if you sat in the middle in the audience, you'd hear that the guitar player on the left was slightly flat and the guitar player on the right was slightly, <laughs> you know, sharp. Because they didn't have tuners back then. Everybody tuned by ear. Oh, God. And then the bass player was, you know, wherever. And then you had, uh, and then you had drums. And then, the, you know, so the person in the middle singing to that has got to figure out, all right, so what's the actual note I'm supposed to be singing to here? Oh, that's and terrible. you know, welcome to the the world of big stages because neither guitar player could hear each other; they were so far oh, apart. God, that's awful. Yeah, <laughs> I know. One of my bass players used to always say, "Well, I like everything coming out of the mix uh, in the monitor, so that I can just play bass." And I was like, "Of course you do, because nobody else is in the bottom. 
Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is competing with you. You're down there by yourself. You can hear everything and you can hear how you fit in. It's like, but everything I'm doing is mid-range and all the vocals and the keyboards and the guitars and everybody's coming through the mid-range and I'm going, ah, I can't hear myself to shape the sound. And all these guys are singing so loud. So yeah, I just had to. Yeah. I mean, as a matter of course, you know, before they even come out to do sound check, you know, I would always turn up in the bass player's wedges. Obviously they want their own instrument to a certain extent, but I would always give them just kick and snare. Yeah. This is like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I find the pocket. This is what I'm going to be playing to. And then obviously the, the singers are always in everybody's wedges, but um, you know, everybody's different. There was one drummer cause I did BB King a bunch of times and there was one drummer with BB King that he really wanted his hi-hat like loud in the mixes wow. because, you know, he used it as a, you know, it wasn't just keeping time. I mean, he used it to embellish mm. and he really needed to hear, you know, all the things he was doing with it and how it sounded. So, I wow. mean, it was the only drummer that I've ever had. It was, always telling me turn up the hi-hat turn up the hi-hat but it's like okay you know yeah (laughs) and you know at berkeley they have a lot of classes where folks are doing sound reinforcement and learning so they're working all the different performance spaces we have there yeah and i was doing another performance clinic at the david friend hall and one of my students was up there doing sound and he was a singer songwriter as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking for certain things in my monitor and he's not getting it, not getting it. He doesn't understand what I'm asking for. And I said, okay, you come down and hear what, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And so I sang and played and he went, Oh, and he went right upstairs and fixed it because it was like, you're a singer songwriter, you know, the voice has to be a little bit more clear and a little bit louder than the guitar. I don't want yeah. the high end of the guitar to be competing with my voice. And so often when I've done live shows, if I show up with an electric guitar, they turn the electric guitar way down. It's like I'm singing with nothing. Whereas if right. somebody shows up with an acoustic, they know what to do. They're so afraid that I'm going to like blast them out like with electric guitar stuff. And it's like, no, I'm just using it as an acoustic but it's electric. <laughs> right, right. Well, when we did big festivals where you had, you know, like 10 bands playing all day long and there's no sound check, they're just line checks. Yes. You know, where you put your headphones on and make sure that all the mics are working. My method was always that I'd bring all the faders down, um, you know, maybe 20% down from where they were going to be at, at max. Hmm. And the band would come out, and the first thing that I would get is the vocal and the bass so that they were living together in a space where it's like they're right out front. Then I bring up the drums. Now I have bass, drums, and a vocal. Now I have a song. Nice. And then everything else would come up. And by the time we got to the, uh, you know, halfway through the, the first song, I'd have things mostly relatively uh, you know where they were going to be pretty close to it but that first you know 30 seconds to a minute of that first song was usually you know let's make sure that everybody can hear the singing the bass has got to be where it needs to be blend in and you know and the, the drums a lot of times were the same drum kit over and over again right so you, those would all be down you know you take all the you know 20, 30 tracks of instruments you have, but then you drop it down to a submix. 
So the drums would be just two faders in your right hand. Nice. So because I would drop them down slightly, then I could very quickly just blend them up. That's, you know, like five seconds. Then I start moving guitars and keyboards up and it's like, okay, we got a mix now. And it, it would come pretty quickly. That's smart. And I've heard other people that would, you know, they do the whole band first, then do the vocal. And everybody in the audience is like, I can't hear them. And it's like, you're already setting yourself up for people to yell at you. Right. You know, because you're not mixing it. Right. It's like, you know, unless it's a jazz band, you know, then you pick, you know, what's the prominent instrument? You know, yes. is it a trumpet? Is, you know, right. whatever, whatever the star is, you've got to put that out from the very beginning, from the first note, that's got to be right out there. Yeah. It has to be. And it's that's what same. people paid for. Yeah. Same for a mix because, you know, you put on a Pat Metheny album, it's a Pat Metheny album. You put on yeah. Stevie Nicks, it's Stevie Nicks. I mean, I worked with him. He was great. Oh, yeah. I almost went on tour with him. In fact, talking about different sides of microphones and stuff, I, I have a video on my YouTube channel where I, it's my actual Pat Metheny audition mm -hmm. when he uh, was looking for a rhythm guitarist to go out on the Secret Story tour. And, uh, I had all these effects and I had all this nice acoustic pickup and stuff. And I couldn't wait to use all these cool things. And I listened, put the headphones on and went, no, that's just an acoustic guitar with a, a condenser mic. So I got rid of all that stuff, put out my best condenser, which was probably a 414 at the time and uh -huh. um, put the headphones on, listened to his record. And it was probably on my half inch eight track, putting the song in from the CD. And, and well, the CD wasn't out yet. I had a, a I think I had a, um, cassette of it or something but anyway i played along with his album and as i played the part because i was figuring out the exact voicings with the exact rhythms to play his song it's for you i just angled my guitar so that it sounded like i was playing with his tone and his touch and mm -hmm. the amount of distance to the mic and it was probably off to the side to get the right tone because i wasn't going to bother with eq and stuff on my little Tascam mixer. Right, and right. I recorded the part, played it that way, just standing in that position. And when I mixed it in and played it for a friend of mine, she plays keyboard, she said, are you even in there? If somebody's screening these, they're not even going to believe that you're playing because it's, it, you've mixed it too good. She said, you better yeah. give them a separate mix on the cassette where you're on one side and the song is on the other. And so that's what I did. I panned my guitar from center to the right and his album from center to the left so that they could really know for sure that this was a submission. Yeah. He loved, he loved it. He loved the fact that it was the right voicings with the right kind of playing with the right kind of touch with the right kind of sound with the right kind of blend. And it was like, yeah, this, this would be a good match for me. But then by the time they went to Europe, they're like, Oh, we have too many bodies. We don't want to pay for another person in Europe. So. Mm. And they picked the, the first time around was throughout the U S and playing on Jay Leno and all those shows and stuff. And, um, they picked the person who had touring experience and could also play trumpet. So it was like, that's oh, great. Yeah. But it was good to come that close and to have him and Steve Rodby in my other house, just hanging out in my so-called studio, then playing with them for two hours. It was amazing. I was, I couldn't believe it. Well, you definitely got chops. There's no question about that. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't play the guitar with the proficiency that, that you play with, but, uh, well, you know, yeah. it's it's one of those things where, you know, when I listen to, uh, you know, you play in the music, you know, it's it, it's it's really enjoyable. You know, you don't play the types of things that, you know, it's not always what you would expect. It's like, 
you know, oh, listen to that. That's different. That's cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably because I have so many different influences than most people. I didn't realize I was such a singer songwriter in those days. You know, I thought I was a guitar player, you know, but I'm not one of those gunslinging guitar players. I, my yeah. favorite two guitar players are like George Harrison and <laughs> James Taylor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're pretty low octane as far as force and yeah, all that kind James, of stuff. James Taylor, he's unbelievable. I know. And, and those two are, Jay, are Pat Metheny's favorite guitar players. So it's like Pat yeah. Metheny saw a hard day's night 25 times. He told me, he was like, I love the Beatles. I was like, well, well you know, it's funny because people love to malign George and Ringo, like oh, as sure. not being good players. I know. And I'm like, you know, George Harrison, if you take his hooks out mm -hmm. of those songs and you play them, they're not those songs anymore. Yep. And then I saw a thing recently where Dave Grohl was talking about Ringo. Yeah. And he said that we put a really great drummer that had never heard these Beatles songs. And we played him the Beatles music and said, go ahead and play drums. Play along. And the guy just started flashing away and doing all this stuff. And he's like, it sounded completely wrong. Absolutely. It's like, you know, w without Ringo, that that band sounds completely different. Oh, it's like, you know, completely you four, different. Four tires on a car. Absolutely. Because I was in a Beatles tribute band that toured for 13 years and we played this one gig where the drummer couldn't come and a sub came in just to save the gig. And the three of us are up front doing our Beatle imitation and everything, playing exact note for note, singing the right harmonies and doing everything that we always did. But without Ringo, the thing fell on its face. And I thought, oh my God, if this is how this band's gonna continue, I'm out of here because this sounds worse than Beatles GB. You know, it was yeah. absolutely horrible, yeah. like you say. And George used to always say that, like, you know, how many Beatles does it take to screw in a light bulb? Four. You know, because it's like the four wheels of a car, you know, yeah. you take one wheel off. It's not the Beatles anymore. And they always right. say a band is only as good as its drummer. Well, and I think one of the best parts about that band, and I know that there were times later on when, you know, Paul would try to tell everybody, you know, you need to play this part or you need to play this part or whatever. Yeah. But I think that they all had a certain amount of freedom to come up with their own part. Yes. There wasn't somebody you know, that was writing it and saying, okay, the song goes like this and this is the only way it goes. You know, they basically were just like, all right, well, you know, here's the song. I played it for you on an acoustic guitar. Let's hammer it out. And apparently they would do that very quickly, like 20 minutes. Mm. Then they'd record it. I know, pretty astounding. Like, it's pretty genius if you really think about it. They really were quick to think on their feet kind of a thing. And then they would play it as many times as they have to to get all two of them, three of them, or four of them to record at once and get the best feeling take. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just fascinating what they did and how they did it. Oh, man, we could talk about them forever. That's like a whole other chat we could do just on the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that whole era, you know, I mean, you go back to, you know, the Beatles and Stones and all that. I mean, the, the whole recording process was a lot quicker and everything, you know, in large part because they're recording eight tracks. I know they bounce things back and forth and stuff like that. But, mm. you know, when they recorded, it, it was just a lot more quick and a lot more expedient than it is now. Yeah. Well, now things have gotten a little bit maybe too tedious. 
You know, like that's what I was getting at when I was saying before was people recording live through an analog console. They weren't thinking about low pass this, low pass that, high pass this, do this, do this, do this. They were like capturing a live performance. The mastering engineer probably took care of that, like you were saying. And we're all playing with all these tiny little plugins, getting so minute details and, you know, (laughs) maybe missing out on the performance half the time. Well, and that's the, the very first thing I said about, you know, early on in this conversation was, you know, it's all about performance. Yeah. And, you know, capturing that performance, you know, if you want to capture it live, that's great. Or in, in the course of, you know, multi-track recording, it's still all about capturing performances. If the performances are good, mm. um, you know, it's going to sound good. Yeah, you're so right. Even the raw tracks will sound good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this has so, been a really fun hang for me. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Bruce. I, I, we should do it again, just talk diesels or something like that. <laughs> oh, no, no. I've already put way too much of my face on YouTube. Nobody's ever going to want to hear me again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. This was very cool and informative. So thank you yeah, so much. Fun. It was yeah, fun. Thanks cool. for having me. Well, thanks for uh, you need to You need to give on. this show a name. Well, I was calling it Creative Conversations, you know. Okay, there you go. There you go. That's good. Yeah, it was great. Cool. You are super creative, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Let's talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was a blast. What a super nice guy. And that's part of his philosophy. This is how things happen. Everything is personality. Everything is, do the people mesh? Do, Do you find a click there? Can you create something together? You can see why people would want to work with Bruce. So awesome. And his knowledge is great. Visit squeezerrecording.com. That's his webpage. And if you have projects that need to be mixed or helped in any way, he's your guy. Thanks so much, Bruce. That was really cool. Have a look at our shiny faces on YouTube or my webpage, laurenpassarelli.com. And why not follow us on Instagram, El Pass Guitar, Squeezer Recording. Thanks for listening. When you call my name